Welcome to Liz Talks. I'm Liz, and I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner and best-selling author, but here I'm 0% professional and 100% mom, spouse, friend, and overanalyzer. We are going to talk food, beauty, family, fitness, mental health, friendship, marriage, and everything in between in this season of Liz Talks, and I'm so glad you're along for the ride. Remember, this is a podcast about thoughts, feelings, and opinions, and I definitely do not give individual, personal, or medical advice. Happy Thanksgiving, friends. Welcome to episode 52 and the last episode of season one of Liz Talks. While I planned to take this week of Thanksgiving off, it happened to coincide with week 52. So I thought, let's go for it and make it a really special one. And the universe must have been feeling that because just in the last few weeks, I became reacquainted with a story, a true story that I thought might be really beautiful and really special to tell. So That's what I'll do today, and I hope you'll listen. But first, before I do that, I'd like to just give a Thanksgiving thank you to you all, my listeners, and just tell you how incredibly thankful I am for you. Some of you who I've been fortunate enough to meet in person have become dear friends, and I imagine we'd all get along really well in real life if we had the chance to meet. It's really just hard to explain how important you all are to me personally, your feedback and your questions and your faith in me. I mean, some of you have been listening to me for almost 10 years, and I do not take that lightly. It's all just mind boggling and so humbling, and I cannot thank you enough because you've also been the reason that I've been able to take care of myself and my family. You might not know that, but every time you trust me enough to listen to this podcast or buy something I've written or created or referred you to, you enable me to do that. I don't take that lightly either. And while I know I've not been perfect, I've always done business to the degree I've thought of it as a business the best way I know how and tried to serve you as best I can. And I want you to know that. And I want you to know when I was in my darkest times after my first daughter was born, which is something I talked about in earlier Liz Talks podcasts, I was able to pull myself out of that in part because you all kept supporting me, buying Beauty Counter, which is one of my top revenue streams. All of that, all of that stuff that you did for me and all of that support that you showed, it made me feel like I could pursue the therapy I needed to crawl back, not all of it covered by insurance. And of course, all the reaching out with ideas and advice and even just concern and support, all of that has meant so much to me. And you've been so instrumental in developing my confidence and my ability to communicate over the last 10 plus years. I'm just so dedicated to learning and thinking and evaluating. And that is in so many ways because of you. And I hope to continue to create a business from that, a business that is truly useful to you. So thank you so much for sticking with me. I'm so, so thankful for you. Now, before I start telling the story of my grandfather, I'll pause quickly to give a rundown, as promised last week, of what season two of Liz Talks will look like. Season two will begin in 2023. I considered doing a single topic season, just tackling one topic in depth. Apparently that's called niching, and it's important to reach people these days to niche, so I hear. And it's tempting because in trying to tackle everything, as I tend to do, I really end up the classic jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none, or maybe more accurately, jack-of-some-trades, sort of, and definitely master-of-none, which makes me 
at best, and this is my internal narrative, it doesn't have to be true, but at best helpful, but not transformational. And at worst, just like a fountain of random information and snippets, which I guess can be very dazzling at parties when your audience is like receptive to some random fact about reflex integration in the birth canal or (laughs) the difference between colocalciferol and calcifidiol. But other than that, I'm not sure how helpful it is. And maybe that's okay because it's out of my scope of practice anyway to solve in-depth problems or give personal advice. But based on your feedback over the last few weeks, my listeners seem to like the broader approach, dipping into a range of topics. And I can definitely oblige. I do hope to dive into your questions more, although some of the deeper, more scientific ones will probably not be answered on a weekly basis. I adore my scientist, Amanda Torres. I love her. You cannot have her. Well, you can. Whatever. If she wants to work for you, that's fine. But I love her two pieces. And to be honest, the organizational aspect of this business is just so dang hard. And that's what makes it hard to package up those scientific Q&As and bring them to you. When I'm dipping into multiple categories, food, beauty, family, fitness, et cetera, et cetera, and working with, with you all to address and uncover interesting things versus like niching down on one thing, that approach sort of multiplies the organizational demands exponentially. And frankly, I can't keep on top of everything. I wish I could. I need a type A version of me to run all of my businesses. So the creative version of me can continue doing what she's best at. But if I'm doing a few things well, I'm doing a few other things poorly, but that's the nature of it, right? That ebb and flow actually is balance, I think. So between how much I can work, which includes podcast prep, podcast setup, recording podcasts, all the way to prep and posting on social media and research and everything else, it just requires an acceptance of my limitations to keep the whole engine running at all. And online business is just a constant process of adjusting, and that's okay. Anyway, so what I'd like to do ideally is this, have a few themes I'm addressing frequently over time. So updating you on particular topics of interest across the entirety of next season. And I have an idea of what those are going to be. And also popping in with the same interviews, miscellaneous topics and Q&A that I've been doing. So please subscribe or stay subscribed. And don't forget about me as I take the next six to eight weeks to enjoy the holidays and spend time with my family and strategize the next evolution of this podcast. Sound good? Wonderful. Okay, on to today's true story. And I hope I'm doing the right thing or at least not the wrong thing in sharing this. My grandfather is no longer with us. He has been gone for several decades and more. And he has this beautiful thing, which is anonymity. He is not on the internet. His name's not there. This story is not there. And I recognize that in telling this story now, it will be on the internet. The the transcript will be out there. His name and his story will be out there. And I hope that's not the wrong thing to do. Because I think there is some beauty, even though he's not here to give his thoughts on the idea but some beauty to not being on the internet these days. But at the same time, this story is just so amazing. And I think so timely given it's Thanksgiving and given so much of the, the anger and abuse that we've all levied toward one another around topics as difficult as war and conflict and just humanity. So it feels like this is something I'm supposed to be sharing. And I certainly hope it's the right thing to do. 
So over the last few weeks, thanks to my daughter's genealogy unit at school, I was reminded of a bit of family history about my grandfather's experience in World War II that has never gotten its due in my mind. Perhaps in part because my grandfather simply didn't talk about it as so few of the men coming back from war in that greatest generation did. Now, I guess I should take a moment to give my thoughts on on war, on military service as briefly as I can. Now, I'm a military spouse quite by accident, and I will tell you that seeing this life from the inside has certainly shifted my perspective from where I used to sit, but not in the stereotypical ways you might imagine. My thinking has become more nuanced, more accepting of the messiness that is being a human on this earth. I didn't go from liberal to conservative, nor did I find myself suddenly becoming unthinkingly enthusiastic about war or munitions or whatever. I can giggle at the America song from Team America, and I can still get teary-eyed at the 4th of July fireworks. I can hold two disparate ideas in my mind, including the fact that extraordinary suffering, willing and unwilling, has taken place in the name of God and this amazing country that is unlike almost anywhere else on earth. Easy for me to say, right? In my advantaged existence, that that sort of retrospective ideas. Absolutely. But that's not an indictment. And this is why I shake my head at these like right-left tropes today, as they are so recklessly applied to war and military action, I rarely find any of the political stereotypes so often outlined in the media in any of my friends in or out of the military. I know liberal gun owners who think we should intervene far more than perhaps they would have 20 years ago. And I know conservatives who are pro-military, but not at all in favor of military interventionism, which is a shift from what I felt I knew years ago. But who knows whether I was just playing into those stereotypes of liberal versus conservative or what we hear today, right wing versus left wing. I don't know. Oddly and outside what I would have theorized about military folks, I've found that my military community is perhaps the least enthusiastic about war out of any group I could call myself part of. And I imagine that's not odd given war is indeed hell. It's hell for everyone in proximity to it, to varying degrees. And I believe, in fact, I think we know it was a hell like nothing we can conceptualize for those in the greatest generation, like my grandfather, so much so that their experiences were not something they wanted to process, which is that word we throw around these days. They wanted to just move on. And if not move on, just keep moving, just move forward. Many of them found some way, somehow, to just bury it all and come home and start an entire life distinct from everything they had just experienced. Compartmentalization. And maybe that's because they didn't have the words. So my belief is that most of us are unqualified to speak on matters military, yet most of us still spend time giving opinions rather than gathering information. I hate war. I hate the precarious situation we are in right now, and I don't pretend to understand it. I very much need to be better informed, but it is frankly impossible if I am not to devote hours each day to studying the complexities of international relationships and how peace is established and maintained. Navigating these complexities is even harder now with the extreme hatred that seems to grow out of the pursuit of knowledge and the asking of questions. And I don't know what we do about that, but I think all of us can appreciate and hopefully be grateful for those who volunteer 
to make what sacrifices are requested by the country they live in, whether their motivation is money for college or an escape from their circumstances or patriotism, which to me is not a dirty word when administered appropriately and thoughtfully. And even more so, we can express reverence for those who did not have a choice or who, like my grandfather, volunteered before the choice was taken away with the hope that he'd be able to take a job that was a little bit safer, a little bit better than where a lot of men ended up. So if we can just all remember, we aren't talking about groups. We're talking about humans, individual people who have experienced true, unfathomable experiences and had to come home and function in the aftertimes. Most of this, we don't even have to imagine. So here's how all of this came to be. My daughter came home with an assignment to record a story that's been passed down in our family. Well, I'm sad to say that we aren't a big passing stories down kind of family. We love each other, but I wouldn't say we've had a strong sense of family identity in the way it's played out in the movies. No big, outlandish, memorable characters. Nobody really making waves or rocking the boat. No strong lore or cautionary tales or this is who we are or memories we talk about every year at the holidays. Maybe a little bit more so now, but certainly not when I was growing up. And as I was racking my brain for some kind of story that has been passed down, my mind landed on a memory. My grandfather, William, who had an article written up about him in a community newspaper sometime in the year or two before he died. I remember reading that article and being really surprised because it included a story about how the transport plane he was on, I think it was a transport plane, serving as aerial radio operator at the end of World War II, it had crashed in the Himalayas. His plane had gone down in the war. His family was notified that he was missing in action. And he came back. And I never, ever heard him talk about it. He came home from the war and began working as vice president of the Danny and Debbie Dare clothing company. So if anybody out there has clothing from that company, please reach out to me. I want to see it. But the other day, I held the original telegram in my hands from the adjutant general of the army that was sent to his mother, my great-grandmother, telling her that her son was missing. Just days, in fact, before the war was to officially end. A telegram telling her that her son was missing. Can you imagine? Sit with that for a moment to get a telegram like that. The story has it, that my grandmother wanted to have his story told. And I imagine she probably reached out to the community newspaper editor and in one way or another made him do the interview, which is still comprised mostly of the letter he wrote to his mother upon being found. I'm not really sure if it's something he would have talked about or been interviewed about otherwise. He was so reserved in so many ways that I'm not sure I saw the more open side of him if he had one. I have two big memories involving him. One was when I was probably seven, I was at my grandparents' house for the day, and I kept stealing these frozen bonbon-type treats out of his garage freezer. I would just walk around the outside of the house, steal one, walk around the outside of the house, steal one. He always had those. My grandma always had zebra cakes. I would still eat a zebra cake. So I kept coming around and taking one until I opened the freezer again and saw a note that said, Keep out Elizabeth. I also remember when I was maybe 12, deciding that we should start hugging. We weren't huggers as a family. 
And I remember I started hugging him and it felt big. It felt important. And I always wondered how he felt about that. Something I remember about my grandfather is that he was somewhere between gruff and reserved and he was capable. My mom is also really capable like he was. She's not gruff. That and he was not afraid of spiders. He'd be fixing the boat or his car and they'd crawl up his arm and he wouldn't even startle. He wouldn't even brush them off. And he wasn't afraid of letting me steer the pontoon boat. I made him keep his hands on the steering wheel anyway, and he always wanted to take them back off again, and I always would put them back on. He was so handsome in the old photos I've seen of him. And I have his military uniform in my closet, and it's so small. People were just smaller back then. It still fit him when the article was written, which is just remarkable. He won the Air Medal for Meritorious Achievement during more than 100 hours of flight over enemy-occupied territory in Assam and Burma in planes that were likely unpressurized, unsophisticated, and beaten down by those later days in the war. And he died when I was a freshman in high school, and I just wish I had more time to talk to him and appreciate him. So now I'd like to read his story as told by Leanna Walters in a small community newspaper in 1995. And Leanna was so unbelievably gracious to literally go through her archives from almost 30 years ago and find this article for me that I knew existed but could not find anywhere. I'm so thankful that she did that and even more thankful that she put this article together so beautifully. The letter is very matter-of-fact, though I can't imagine things were as unemotional and straightforward as they seem in the letter. I can only imagine what's between those lines. So this article was written nearly 30 years ago, talking about his experiences nearly 50 years before that. 80 years. Most World War II survivors are gone. And may we be forever thankful. The Secretary of War has asked me to express his deep regret that your son has been missing in India, Burma area, 30th July, 45. If further details or other information are received, you will be promptly notified. It would be six days before another telegram would arrive, assuring her of his safety, and even longer before she would learn of his extraordinary escape from the crash of a C-46 military transport plane in the Himalayan mountains of Burma. Staff Sergeant Wagner, a radio operator for the 4th Combat Cargo Group of the Army Air Corps, served exactly halfway around the world in the China-Burma-India theater, probably the least publicized theater of the war. The Japanese, in expansionist fervor, needed resources, especially petroleum, to supply their campaigns in the Pacific. To this end, just days after their attack of Pearl Harbor, they invaded Burma, a rich storehouse of oil. Already, Japan controlled much of China, having inched their way from Manchuria in 1931 to Inner Mongolia and other areas of northern China, and on throughout eastern China by the end of 1938. By 1942, the Japanese had captured the Burma Road, choking off supplies to the British 14th Army. The United States Army devised a radical solution, airlift equipment over the Himalayan mountains via the C-46, a twin-engine, unarmed, limited-altitude cargo craft. The perils were manifold, flying in largely uncharted territory, often in severe weather, in an area of relative aviation infancy over the highest mountain range in the world. Pilots nicknamed the route the Aluminum Trail in reference to the downed plains dotting the mountainsides. 
By the end of July 1945, Sergeant Wagner had logged 600 hours of flight time over the hump and had received the Air Medal with three oak leaf clusters, plus the Distinguished Flying Cross with one oak leaf cluster. It was my full-time job, he recalls. Day after day, the GIs transported everything from beef carcasses to ammunition from the Army Air Corps base in Burma to Kunming, China. A crew of four, pilot, co-pilot, crew chief, and radio operator, manned each flight. Bill had never flown with any of the other crew members on that July 30th flight. At the outset, when he found out who was the pilot on the mission, he remembers thinking, I hope I don't have to fly with him again. The crash of their C-46 and the subsequent success of a B-29, the Enola Gay, ensured that his wish would come true. About a week after the crash from a tent hospital in Mijna, he wrote his mother. Dear Mom, well, I've got quite a story to tell, and it won't be easy to do in a letter. We had a little accident, and I'm in the hospital now, but I'm okay and as good as new. On the night of the 29th, I made a flight over the hump. We got back here the morning of the 30th, and the field was closed in because of the rain and the fog. We didn't have enough gas to fly to one that was open, and so we started making an instrument letdown. We got down to 3,000 feet heading away from the field and were just getting ready to turn back so that we could come in for our landing when some trees brushed the bottom of the plane. The pilot pulled the plane up and gave it full power. We thought we were clear then, but we weren't. Instead of flying over flat country as we thought, we were climbing up a mountain. We didn't make it, and we came to a sudden halt with the plane resting on the side of the mountain. Luckily, it didn't catch fire because we didn't have enough gas. The wings and tail had been torn off. We got out as fast as we could, and after I got out, I couldn't stand on my legs. They were so weak. The pilot got a first aid kit and fixed my wounds up the best he could. I got one big gash on my right leg below the knee. I have a cut on my forehead and a cut on my head just above the hairline. You could look down the mountain and see the path we left where we mowed down the trees. As soon as we got strength enough, we got back to the airplane, spread our parachutes on the floor, and tried to rest. We laid there about three hours and then got up to look around a bit. There wasn't much we could do, so we cut some poles, hung them from the top of the plane, and made a rope bottom for them from the parachute shrouds. They made pretty good bunks, and we used the parachute for cover. There was plenty of first aid equipment on the plane, which really helped. We caught some rainwater to drink and purified it with tablets. On the 31st, when we woke up, it was still raining and foggy. There wasn't much we could do, so we tried to make ourselves as comfortable as possible and rest. All we had to eat was some composite chocolate bars that were in our parachutes. We had one square for each meal. On the 1st of August, the pilot and I decided we'd take a look around. For about two hours, we hacked our way through the jungle, finding nothing. We hadn't planned on walking out, but we caught a glimpse of the valley floor, and the pilot asked me if I wanted to go on or go back to the plane. Well, I didn't think we could find our way back to the plane, and I guess he thought the same thing, so we went on. We followed an elephant trail for a while, and then we started hacking again. In one place, the underbrush was so thick we were walking at least two feet above the ground. We finally ran onto a stream and decided to follow it on down. Rocks and boulders and more rocks. At places where it dropped off too suddenly, we had to climb along the bank. We thought we'd make it down to the bottom before nightfall, but night caught us out with no shelter. We tried to build a fire, but the matches were wet, and so was the wood, so we gave up and leaned back on a rock to try to get some rest. I have never been so tired. I don't believe I could have gone another step, and I was feeling sick. It rained all night. I've never spent such a miserable night. 
We sat up all night as close to each other as we could get, our legs pulled up against our chests, and nothing to cover us but my heavy flying jacket. The only part of us that was halfway dry was our heads. I was really happy to see it start getting light. By seven o'clock, we hit level ground, but still couldn't see where we were. For about another two hours, we walked through elephant grass, which was above our heads. Finally, we hit a road, if you could call it that. I think the only thing that used it was ox carts. I'd like to know how far we walked on it. It must have been ten miles. There were at least a dozen places where water was over the road. Not until noon did we come on a road that looked like it might be traveled. We waited about 15 minutes, and a lieutenant came by in a jeep and picked us up and took us straight to the hospital. On the way in, we stopped at the lieutenant's office, and the pilot phoned in that we were back and okay. At the hospital, we got a warm meal, which included chicken soup. The two other members of the plane's crew reached the hospital two days later. And that's the end of the letter. Bill was still in the hospital in Burma when he heard the news that the war was over. Four days later, in Kansas City, his mother received the second War Department telegram. The Secretary of War has asked me to inform you that your son, who was previously reported missing, is now hospitalized, diagnosis, minor injuries, and shock. Her reply, transmitted to Burma via Indian Posts and Telegraph Department at New Delhi, was brief and heartfelt. We are all rejoicing and on job. Love, Elizabeth. And I'm told by my mom that on job means praying. After reaching the hospital, Bill was never again to see the pilot or other crew members. The pilot and co-pilot, being officers, were taken to a different hospital. In fact, since the war, he's had no contact with any of the members of his outfit. Once the war was over, I think most of us blocked out those experiences or put them behind us, he says. Rather, he returned to Kansas City and got on with his new civilian career. Two school buddies, Harry and Marvin, had formed a children's clothing company, a prophetic move in light of the upcoming baby boom. Bill joined the fledgling company as vice president. While Harry and Buddy hit the road selling accounts, Bill opened each day's mail, filled orders, stocked shelves, typed invoices, and took the packed orders to the post office. At the height of its success, Danny and Debbie Dare Clothing Company employed 30 salespeople, supplying kids' clothes to better department stores throughout the U.S. and Hong Kong. And that's where the article ends. Again, may we be forever grateful. And that's it for this season of Liz Talks. Please remain subscribed and look for new episodes in January 2023. Thank you so much for listening and happy holidays.